Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm hot. I'm hot. It's very yeah, hot outside. Yeah, it's hot. <laughs> yeah. Are you doing anything special to beat the heat, Jasmine? Yeah, I bought a pool membership this that, week. <laughs> nice. All right. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, I I was invited about three years ago to a Caribbean a themed party and bought some linen pants and forgot about them till this week and i've been wearing linen pants and you know what it's nice you know i'm not like a shorts guy so no, you're not a shorts guy. so yeah these linen pants have been really really clutch <laughs> this week so yeah we we have a good show this week enough about my pants uh this is uh we have a great show it, it is uh our union show we have two very special guests talking to us about union issues in kentucky uh very specifically private sector unions so we we have caitlin blair who is the political and communications director for ufcw that's the united food and commercial workers local 227 she talked to us kind of about about current events in the labor movement kind of uh who is it that forms these things why why and why is labor happening or why is labor such a hot issue right now why are so many people talking about forming unions uh this is of course a huge issue uh, all the time but i feel like especially hot right now and that's something we talked about it uh with, with her and then we also had Jay Dennis, who is a business agent for Teamsters Local 89. And he talked to us a little bit more specifically about a few union actions that are going on here in Kentucky, very specifically about one um, at a company in southern Indiana right across the bridge from Louisville and New Albany that is on strike right now. So he talked to us a little bit about that. Uh, and, and you know, we both of these were very good interviews. Jasmine, this is your idea. Uh, and I thought it was a great one, so I'm glad that you put it together. How did you think the interviews went? Yeah, I thought it went really great, and it was actually not my idea. It was Bill Miller of the Teamsters Local 89's idea. I'll give him a shout-out because I know he's going to listen. Um, so it was his idea, and I think it was a really good one because I really enjoyed our interviews. Uh, yes. You know what? I, I love Bill. Uh, I have some good stories about Bill. So, you know, maybe <laughs> if you if anybody ever runs into me out of, you know, out of the show, you can ask me and I'll tell you everything you need to know about Bill Miller, uh, who's a great guy who works for Local 89 as well. Okay. Uh, but before we get to that, we have a couple of stories we want to talk about. So first of all, uh, there has been some, we've talked about some Republican candidates running for office next year in the executive branch elections that are due. We have um, our first rumored Democratic candidate who is not Andy Bashir. So we're going to get into that that very briefly and then also jasmine has a couple of policing stories that we wanted to catch up on a couple of things that we've been tracking hopefully we move through these pretty quickly so that we can get to our interviews so without any further ado let's talk about rocky atkins Okay, Jasmine. So Jack Bramer, who is ostensibly retired, uh, you know, they had like a whole thing for him leaving the the Herald Leader after a career's worth of really great journalistic work. Um, he's still he's still scooping people, man. He's yeah, out here. He's, he's still working. Yeah, he, he wrote this article for the Northern Kentucky Tribune a few days ago, saying that Rocky Atkins is considering running for Secretary of Agriculture. So, you know, this was there was an interview on the record with with Rocky that Jack Bramer had. And, you know, there were a lot of denials that always happen at this stage of the race. But Atkins did admit that he was, quote, keeping options open and not ruling anything out, unquote. So, Jasmine, the Secretary of Agriculture has been in Republican hands for five straight terms, and that's a level of dominance by a single party over an office that's unmatched in Kentucky politics right now. You know, uh, every single office has gone back and forth between Democrats and Republicans, but the Secretary of Agriculture is very solidly in the hands of the Republican Party. And not just that, the Secretary of Agriculture has kind of been the place for Republican rising stars to start their careers. So, Ryan Quarles is, of course, now running for governor. Before him was James Comer, who ran for governor and almost won and also is now in Congress. He's the congressperson for the 1st District. And then before him, Richie Farmer, who was the party's candidate for lieutenant governor in 2011. Uh, and a lot of people thought that he was going to have a long and storied political career in front of him, but then he ran into some legal trouble. So, you know, it has been not just a, a strongly Republican office, but a, an office that has bred a lot of important Republicans that have come out of it. Rocky Adkins has been seen as a potential candidate for several offices since he lost that gubernatorial primary back in 2019. But a lot of the offices he's been he's been rumored to be considering would have taken him to Washington. You know, I think a lot of people said maybe he should run for the fifth district Congress seat against uh, you know the long term Congressperson from there. Uh, a lot of people said he should run for Senate this time, um, but he he passed on both of those. But of course, both of those would have taken him to Washington. He currently though works in Frankfurt, so if he ran for this, uh, it wouldn't even require a significant move. You know, obviously, he makes his home in Moorhead or, or close there in Elliott County. Um, and, and, you know, I think he spends most of his time in Frankfurt these days because he has a full-time job that's there. 
Andy Bashir is gearing up for the 2023 election. There's no doubt about it. He's been raising a bunch of money. He's been, uh, you know, kind of, you know, laying the groundwork for what that election is going to look like. And one of the big questions that I've kind of have is like, how much influence is he going to exert on recruiting candidates for the down ballot executive branch races? You know, is he going to recruit somebody to run for auditor? Is he going to pick somebody special that he thinks would fit well in the race for treasurer? That kind of stuff. And Adkins is one of Governor Bashir's closest advisors. Uh, that has something that we've been something that we've heard throughout Governor Bashir's first term in office. People have talked about how key Rocky Atkins has been in working with the legislature. And, and this kind of, you know, provides some evidence that maybe Andy Bashir is potentially, you know, getting some good folks that he thinks are good candidates running for some of these offices. Uh, I have no evidence to suggest that there's been conversations about that, but it does look like that to me. So, Jasmine, I want to know from you, do you think Rocky is a good fit for Secretary of Agriculture? Does he stand a chance to win if he gets into the race? And, and does he help Andy Bashir in Eastern Kentucky? where he has a lot of appeal or does andy help him is andy Bashir's popularity help him and his chances to become the secretary of agriculture i do think he would be a good fit for the office i mean he he knows state government in and out you know he was in the legislature for so long and then now he's been part of the executive branch and, and really understands how it works and so i do think he's a good fit um and i think that Having Rocky Atkins on the ballot really helps Andy Bashir in Eastern Kentucky. I mean, Rocky Atkins was very popular in his district, but I think he was popular all across Eastern Kentucky. I mean, people really see him as like one of them. And so I think that it would be very helpful for Andy Bashir to have him on the ballot. But I don't know if, if he were to run, I'm not sure if he would win. Um, I know that he would have support in Eastern Kentucky and in Louisville and Lexington, but that office has been Republican for so long. I don't know how he would fare in Western, in the Western part of the state. And so I'm not sure if he has a chance to win, but I do think he could be helpful to Andy Bashir. What do you think, Robert? Yeah, I think that's a really astute, Jasmine. I, I agree with almost all of that. Um, I think you. I, I agree. I think he's a good, uh, you know, fit for Secretary of Agriculture for the reasons you mentioned. I think most of the time the Secretary of Agriculture kind of comes from Western Kentucky, uh, and and in the Republican primaries we've kind of seen um, that. Yeah, that is kind of the case. You know, Jamie Comer, you know, hailing from Western Kentucky. Ryan Coyle is kind of from Central Kentucky. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, historically, you know, Richard Heath, who is a candidate this year on the Republican side, he's coming from Western Kentucky, that's the that's the side of the state that has, um, you know, I would say probably larger uh, agricultural interests. But Eastern Kentucky's yeah. the role of agriculture in Eastern Kentucky is really increasing, and that's something that Rocky Atkins even mentioned in the article. So I think you know that 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 does make him a good fit. Uh, that his region is starting to depend more and more on agriculture, and he understands how the government works. Regarding who helps who, I think that they both do really help each other. I think you you hit the nail on the head there. Like Andy Andy Bashir needs somebody like Rocky Atkins on the ticket so that when they campaign in eastern kentucky people show up i mean i think the people are going to show up for for andy Bashir. that is something that people across the state really do tend to like andy Bashir. but i think having somebody local to eastern kentucky who's deeply trusted and a good democrat is something that really is going to help out andy Bashir in in the eastern part of of the state and i do think that yes if if rocky gets on the ticket andy Bashir is really going to lift his uh you know Rocky Atkins profile in places that he has some strength, like McCracken County, like Muhlenberg County, where he was one of the few counties he carried in Western Kentucky when he won his attorney general's race, uh, you know, places that are Henderson County, places that are trending Republican, but still have some Democratic strength in them. Regarding does he have, stand a chance, this is something that I think is just deeply interesting. So many of these races on the, like throughout the entire government are going to be open. You know, we have Andy Bashir running for re-election for governor. But the attorney general's office is is open. Secretary of State's the one that I think is filled. The treasurer termed out, uh, you know, the, the auditor running for governor, the secretary of agriculture running for governor. Um, I don't think that <laughs> there's not going to really be any incumbency advantage that the Republicans have in these races. But there just is this trend of of the, the you know, people in Kentucky voting for Republicans unless they know who they are. And that is how Andy Bashir kind of became the only person on the Democratic side to win in 2019. But people tend to know who Rocky Adkins is. And he's going to be running against somebody on the Republican side who people don't really know that well. 
um, r- regardless if, it, if it's Richard Heath or if it's Jonathan Chell, unless you're a political nerd like us, you probably don't know who that is. So, you know, that's these are good open questions. A lot of stuff to chew on with this one. Um, you know, I at the end of the day, I think Rocky Atkins is a good Democrat. He's a good candidate. I'm, I'm, I really want him to have something to do in the future, no matter what it is, because the more that we can get a, a, out of our good candidates, the better off we are. Uh, and, and we're seeing so many of the old hands um, who provide so many, you know, value, so much valuable experience leave the arena. And the legislature, especially, it'll be good to have somebody who really is is well experienced on the ticket next year. So I hope it I, I hope it comes to fruition in some form or fashion. Yeah, so do I. All right. Well, that's enough about Rocky Atkins. Uh, Jasmine, tell us about some of these policing stories that you've been tracking. All right. So there's two stories that we wanted to catch up on a little bit today. So one of them is regarding the internal investigation surrounding the killing of David McAtee. Um, David McAtee was shot by law enforcement at his barbecue place in the West End on June 1st, 2020. And we're... We just now, um, the Leo and the Courier Journal have uh, obtained documents from that internal LMPD investigation. And so we wanted to talk a little bit about that. So Katie Cruz, who is one of the LMPD officers who shot pepper balls at McAtee's home slash barbecue restaurant, um, she was terminated in February of this year, which is over a year and a half after David McAtee's death. So that investigation took quite a bit of time. The Public Integrity Unit investigation found that Cruz violated three different policies, the body cam procedures, de-escalation policies, and the chemical agents policies. When LMPD and the National Guard um, pulled up on Broadway, they say that Cruz veered off and shot pepper balls into McAtee's business and hit his niece several times. David McAtee then pulled her inside and fired two shots above the shoulder, which suggests that he was firing in the air. Cruz, um, another LMPD officer, and then two National Guard members returned fire, and David McAtee was killed by one of the National Guard. She was the only officer who fired any pepper balls um, during this entire incident. So she didn't activate her body camera that night and did not fill out a failure to activate form. So that's the violation of the body cam policy. As for the chemical agents policy, um, that was for using pepper balls on a crowd that was not disorderly or aggressive, and they were on private property. Um, If people remember, there was a curfew that night, and so that's why law enforcement was out trying to enforce curfew, and the McAtees were, were on their private property, and so that's a a violation of the chemical agents policy to, to fire pepper balls onto private property in her PIU interview. She admitted that no one was being aggressive. Um, and, but she said that she was just doing what she was told, which was to clear that crowd. She also said that she had limited training on the use of pepper balls and that she wasn't given instructions about the circumstances in which to use them. I guess there's really no surprise there to me um, that there was limited training. It, it seemed like those um, early weeks of, of the protests in Louisville, it was just all hands on deck for LMPD and they were using uh, pepper balls and tear gas. Uh, Indiscriminately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> any chance, any chance they got there. There's still an open investigation um, for an LMPD officer who, fired pepper balls directly at a reporter that, and that was like caught on camera and that investigation from the public integrity unit is still ongoing. She also violated the de-escalation policy by not giving people an opportunity to respond to commands before firing. Um, the Commonwealth attorney's office in Louisville cleared her and the other officer and the National Guard who fired shots at David McAtee saying that they were justified in using force. She has been charged federally, though, not with murder or anything like that. Um, She's just charged with using excessive force against David McAtee's niece, and that could carry a charge of up to 10 years. Um, So those are federal charges that she's facing. 
There was also a separate investigation regarding her social media where a violation of the social media policy was found. And um, her she had a Facebook post um, from a night or two before that night that said, I hope the pepper balls that she got lit up with a little later on hurt. Come back and get some more, old girl. I'll be on the line again tonight. Um, in her termination letter, Chief Erica Shields wrote that the post could be seen as promoting violence and that it adversely affected, lowered, or destroyed public respect of LMPD. She has, Katie Cruz has appealed the termination, um, but be- because of her federal charges, uh, she's asked that her appeal hearing be put on hold. And so um, that's a little, it, it's not quite a resolution um, because she still has an appeal hearing before the merit board, but a little bit of closure for something that happened two years ago now. Yeah, it, it's it's crazy to even revisit this. I mean, when we were living through it, it was just so, so wild. And I mean, I'm just going back to those press conferences the day after David McAtee was killed by the police with, you know, the governor having the first one and, and saying, you know, there's a lot of information forthcoming. I want to be as transparent as possible. There's body cam footage. We're going to look at all of it. And then Greg Fisher's, the mayor, Greg Fisher's press conference later on that day where he admitted that there was no body cam footage and um, that, you know, they were basically having to piece everything together from this. And, and just like going through all of the just kind of points of, you know, kind of failure, I think is a fail way, fair way to put it up and down the chain of command here where, you know, obviously the individual officer, Katie Cruz here made a lot of mistakes and did a lot of things that were really bad, but then, you know, there's a lot of liability with LMPD in terms of not getting her correctly trained for this. And, and, you know, maybe not, not preparing the officers in a, in a respectful way to, to deal with this. And I mean, that's something we saw throughout this entire situation and then all the way up until, you know, the political situation as well. And our political leaders, um, you know, allowing, the situation to get to the place where it, it got to so you know just wild to live through all of this but you know relive all of this but you know it's glad to see that there is a little bit of closure i think it's it is you know an act of justice you, you know you don't deserve to keep your job after you you do something like this that leads to someone's death like that so you know that's that's where we're at with it so mm-hmm. and it, it seemed like her termination wasn't very public until she was charged federally and then LMPD was asked if she's still employed and they're like oh no we terminated her um so she was terminated in February but you know I didn't really see news articles about it until at least March and then in the last week or so um we finally have some details about the public integrity unit investigation so our next story um we're updating a little bit about um, the killing of Omari Cryer in Louisville. That's something we talked about just a few weeks ago. And we now have body camera um, from the night that he was killed by a deputy marshal. So we know that there was an arrest warrant for assault in the second degree, strangulation, and a couple misdemeanor charges. So those are all state offenses. So those those aren't federal offenses because... Um, a lot of people have wondered why a deputy marshal was involved. That's that's a federal officer. Um, but those were state charges that he had an arrest warrant for. They're class C felonies and misdemeanors. So there weren't any like violent offenses or anything like that. Um, LMPD alleges that Cryer fled on foot and attempted re- to retrieve a firearm from his left from his left waistband. He then jumped a fence and detectives told him to drop the gun and then a deputy off camera to the right shoots Cryer. Um, They say that no LMPD officer discharged a weapon. It was only the deputy marshal. And so um, when they released the body cam, this is all narrated by someone at the beginning of the body camera video. And I take a little bit of issue with this um, because they're releasing the body camera video, which is supposed to be um, done for transparency and accountability. But at the beginning of it, they have someone talking and they have um, words on the screen narrating exactly what happened. And while I didn't see any like discrepancies from what they said and what I saw in the video, I think that providing a narrative before showing a video is allows them to like 
give people an idea of how they want to watch it and what they're it, looking for instead of just allowing people to objectively view it. It introduces bias. It's really hard yes. to s- it, it's really hard to see anything besides what they say if they say it first. Because all right. of a sudden then if you're watching it you're looking for the things that they say and if there's anything else you're you're you know more likely to miss it. So yeah, they're definitely like biasing the investigation by by releasing mm-hmm. the video in this way. Yeah. In the video, it does look like Cryer has a gun, um, but he is running the entire time. And so his back is to um, the officers that are chasing him, and it doesn't look like he ever turns towards them or points it. The deputy shoots immediately when or after um, he jumps a fence, and so it's not really clear either where the entry wounds were LMPD in their original statement said he was shot from the front. Um, the wounds look to be on the shoulder, so he could have been shot from behind, the front, the side. It's really hard to tell. Um, but they're definitely like controlling the narrative and, and telling you like what they want you to see on the video. That's where we are with the Omari Cryer investigation. I think um, something I still want to know at least is why a deputy marshal was there. <laughs> yeah, that the the why the the federal government agent was there. The F, it, like the that's who that is, right? The U.S. marshal, right? Yeah, yeah. and so I, you know, I still think there is a lot of um, information that is necessary here. I you know from the video, um, I'm not sure that that there will be any kind of criminal charges for officers involved or anything like that. I think that's a a tough call. Um, But I I do think that there, that the public needs to know why deputy marshals are involved in like state and local. Yeah. Why? That's, that's a big question. Like if you're going to be like, who's doing, who's policing you, who's providing law enforcement for your community is something that we deserve Mm -hmm. to know. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, that's a, yeah, we'll we'll definitely keep track of these as we go along here, uh, and, and you know we'll also keep track of the political situation. The other thing we wanted to talk about, but we're very excited to bring you these these two interviews um, that that are coming up right now with Caitlin Blair and with Jay Dennis. So let's get to those right now. Caitlin Blair is the political and communications director for the United Food and Commercial Workers Local 227. She's responsible for the advancement of legislative and electoral priorities that will make life better for Kentucky and Indiana families. She also coordinates a growing grassroots union member activist network, um, an aggressive internal and external communications operation, and a strong community engagement strategy focusing on getting all hardworking people better wages and benefits that they deserve. She currently serves on the board of Kentucky Anna Works, the Kentucky Policy Board, and the Governor's Occupational Safety and Health Standards Board, and she's also the chair of Emerge Kentucky. So, Caitlin Blair, welcome to my Old Kentucky podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're very happy to have you. Um, and we have a lot of questions for you about kind of about the history and uh, kind of how labor issues work here in Kentucky. But kind of before we jump into those, I mean, with that great introduction, I do kind of want to know a little bit about you. Can you tell us, you know, you work for UFCW and Local 227. Can you tell us a little bit about that union and what your role is within it and how, how you work, uh, you know, what your job is uh, on a day-to-day basis? Sure. Um, So I um, was hired by the United Food and Commercial Workers Local 227 in January of 2009. Um, So I've seen a lot of changes um, in the labor movement, um, but also in my career because unions are nonprofit organizations. So anyone who works for a small nonprofit can understand that um, when you see a need in a nonprofit, you fill that need and that's how you grow in your career. So I was originally hired to do um, online organizing. And today I oversee um, the political department, the communications department, but also member services. um, In addition to working with my coworkers um, who provide direct representation to hardworking people every single day. We represent some really well-known companies in the Commonwealth, um, including Kroger and Meyer, JBS, but also Jim Beam and Wild Turkey and Glenmore Distillery, which is owned by Sazerac um, and Carhartt also. We represent sewing facilities and the only distribution center that Carhartt has in the world is here in Hanson, Kentucky. 
Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, and and you know UFCW. Uh, anybody that goes to a grocery store, you probably interact with UFCW on some level. So that's that's cool to know. All right. So labor movements have a long history in both urban and in rural Kentucky. And you know you've talked to us already mentioned some uh, unions that you have here in Louisville, and then some you have outside of Louisville in more rural areas. So right now Kentucky is definitely part you know of the recent increase in labor union activity. So tell us a little bit about our current movement and you know how we ended up here. How did we get to this point? Well, um, there's a lot to unpack in that question. So I I can talk a little bit about some of my observations as a young person um, who was hired in the labor movement when there weren't a whole lot of young people working for unions um, like me. And one of the things that I have been watching over the last several years is that when we look at generations within um, the United States population, for a very long time, millennials have had the highest approval rating of labor unions than any other generation in our country. And so what I've been watching is as millennials slowly become the largest generation of workers in the workforce, we see this rise overall of approval of labor unions. And so I think that part of um, what brought us to this current moment is just the fact that a younger generation that really has never known a period of economic stability in this country are now making up the majority of the workforce. Um, And they also tend to be more um, socially conscious and more um, concerned about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workforce. And those are all things that unions are are built to help foster. Um, So I really think that what we're seeing right now is the product of a generational shift um, in the workforce in America, but also COVID. You know, COVID changed the way that people think about work. Um, And so we're seeing a lot of anger. We're seeing a lot of people say, no, I need to set boundaries um, around my work life because I work to live. I don't live to work. And, And I think that's what you're seeing in a lot of the energy around Um, recent organizing campaigns as you're seeing workers who traditionally weren't organizing, organizing. And um, it's really, really exciting to be a part of of this moment um, and to help support and, um, you know, use the expertise that I have built over the last several years to help them um, in their efforts of collective action. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about Um, the pandemic, because when I worked for the public defender's office, I mean, that coming out of the pandemic and coming back into the office was when they started a union campaign, essentially. And I definitely think that that's true of a lot of other industries as well. I also think it's interesting that millennials are the, have the highest approval rating of unions, because I didn't know that. Um, But it also kind of coincides with millennials entering the workforce like at the time that states are passing like right to work laws and things like that. So uh, I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I think bottom line with COVID is a lot of people felt like, and, and this is true if you don't have a union, that they had absolutely no voice or no say mm-hmm. when it came to their safety, when things started to, you know, quote unquote, open up or return to normal. The reality is, is that you know, people were still dying. We were still all wearing masks um, and COVID was still killing, you know, a lot of people and it wasn't a return to normal. There's nothing normal. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So we wanted to talk a little bit about Louisville specifically. So Louisville has a long history of unionization with several of our major employees having important union partners like Kroger, um, but also UPS and GE and Ford. So can you tell us uh, more specifically about the history of labor in Louisville? Well, so um, I I actually usually um, tend not to talk about labor history because we if, hear a lot of people say, oh, well, unions did good things in the past, but, you know, we don't need them now. Mm-hmm. And, it, it, you know, the reality of working today is if you have a manager, you need a union. <laughs> um, so I will say, like, companies like UPS, you know, they um, unionized in the early 1900s. Kroger has been a union company and a very successful one at that 
for decades. Uh, you know, my husband's father retired from GE, as did many people's um, grandparents and parents. Mm-hmm. My grandfather did. Um, and so we have a rich history here of unionizing. And so I guess what I take away from that is that the values of collective action have been values that this community has held for generations. Like this is not a new thing for Louisville. Um, but now what we need to do is we need to make sure that we are addressing the modern needs of a modern workforce. So what does that look like for unions? How do we rise to this moment where, you know, people are used to saying, oh, labor, labor unions are responsible for the 40-hour work week or the weekend. Um, and that's not necessarily the case for the modern workforce right now, um, or that's not necessarily what they need. And so I really like to talk about how unions are pivoting to address the needs of, for example, the public defenders, Jasmine, like, what are their needs? Because they are very different mm-hmm. than what the needs of someone who is working at GE or Kroger in the 1960s and 70s were. Um, so I find that when we talk about unions, it's really good to, to remind people that unions have always pivoted to what the needs of the workforce was at the moment. And that's what labor unions are doing now. That's why you're seeing a lot of Starbucks workers um, organize. You're seeing the Amazon labor union organize. Um, we're seeing half-price books, bookstore workers organize. Um, Heine Brothers here in Louisville, mm-hmm. um, really excited about uh, those brave workers standing up to start their union. Um, so I think it's important that we acknowledge that we have a strong history, that the values that we all share um, of you know equality and justice and fairness um, and collective action have been values in this community for a very, very long time. Yeah, I know these are these are all really great points, and and just kind of like in my you know the perspective that I see about the recent history about union efforts, and when you mentioned like millennials having a really high approval of of unions, you know when we came into the workforce, there was the Great Recession, and it was a really the bottom in terms of worker power in the history of American like the twenty first century for sure, but going back to probably the Great Depression and this moment where workers kind of have a lot of power just because of inflationary pressures and and a lot of other stuff that's 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 kind of going on around us. Uh, and I think workers really are seizing uh, their power and, and realizing that they can you know what what are employers going to do? They can't they can't find workers anywhere else. So that's uh you know they, that's this is really the moment where they can seize power. So um, but we did kind of want to talk a little bit about politics since that's a big part of your job. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that I have watched in, in the 21st century here when I've been alive is, is there's been some tension, uh, you know, kind of between the Democratic Party and the labor movement, um, you know, kind of about how to balance social issues like LGBTQ rights, civil rights, abortion rights with some of these labor issues and economic issues. And this is something that gets talked about a lot as in like think pieces and, and whenever people talk about labor issues and, and workers. Uh, so tell us about, you know, kind of how leaders in the labor movement deal with this tension and and whether you think that this tension is kind of overblown is this actually an issue or is this just something people like to talk about well so i do want to remind you that um labor unions have been partners in civil rights and justice movements for generations right like the march on washington where dr king gave his famous i have a dream speech was was the march um for jobs and freedom Uh, And one of the main organizers of that march was A. Philip Randolph, who was a very key labor figure um, in the AFL-CIO. It's a history that we're very proud of. Um, That being said, I'm not going to pretend like labor unions have been perfect on these issues all of the time. We've certainly had our internal struggles with racism, sexism, xenophobia. um, But the reality is, is unions are democratic, small d institutions um, at every level, workers and um, their co-workers vote on their contracts, they vote on their leaders. Um, And that is one of the reasons that we have been able to be on the right side of history for a lot of these things. I will say, as far as the Democratic Party goes and tension within with between those issues, is that the Democratic Party, while they are better, on working people's issues than the Republican Party tends to be, 
they are not necessarily filling the needs that working people have in, the, in their everyday life. So it's not necessarily, um, I think that the where we're talking about balance there is that there's been very little um, done to help working people by, the, by both parties. And you find a lot of um, Democrats think that they're entitled to labor union endorsements because they're a Democrat. But we can't persuade our members to vote for somebody when we don't have a record to show them, like, this is what this person is doing for you. We don't have the power to wave a magic wand and say, you know, the 25,000 members of the UFCW 227 vote this way. We have to persuade our members just like everybody, every other group. And if we don't have anything to go to them and say, this is why, then, then that, you know, creates tension. So I, I think that for a long time, labor issues, economic issues have been put on the back burner as Democrats become more dependent on business um, donors to fund their campaigns in the party. But I, I think that we're seeing a pendulum swing um, in the right direction here in that we're um, talking more about how we connect with, with workers, with regular working people, um, in particular, rural white working class voters. Um, and when we can talk about the issues that they're feeling um, when it comes to their bread and butter, then we can create a bridge for those workers to join the Democratic Party or to vote Democrat. Um, and so I'm excited as those conversations move forward, but we, we, have, we have a lot of work to do. You know, when you talk to people right now, the number one issue that they talk about, whether they're Democrat or Republican, is inflation um, and how they're really struggling to make ends meet. And people just want to do well for themselves, do well for their families, contribute to the economy. And we don't talk about the fact that working people, regular working people, are the heroes of this economy. They're the engines of this economy, and it's their contributions that are going to make our economy grow. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned endorsements um, a little bit there. And so I wanted to talk about maybe maybe I'm the only person interested in this um, because I'm an attorney, but I think it's important for everyone to know because everyone can vote in judicial elections. And in Louisville, at least, labor endorsements are highly sought after in judicial races. Um, those candidates are nonpartisan and they also, you know, can't really run on issues or policies because they're, they're supposed to be independent and they have an ethics code to abide by. So how do unions go about endorsing in those races? And what do you think um, getting a union endorsement says about a judicial candidate? Well, so I can't speak for every union, but I, I can speak for my union. Um, and, you know, I often tell people that for regular working folks, the elected official that they are most likely to come into contact with is a judge. Mm -hmm. And so those positions are critically important. And, and it's really important that judicial candidates understand what it's like to punch a clock and maybe have to go to family court because you're getting a divorce um, or something else, or you're a victim of domestic violence. It, it's really important that judicial candidates understand the impact of the way that the system works or doesn't work um, and what that means for people to be able to have continue to be employed. So I look for when I am um, talking to people running for judicial um, seats, I look for empathy and I look for curiosity um, because I want them to be more curious about what it's like to be um, a worker that punches a clock at Kroger or at JBS because most of them um, don't have that background and that's okay. Um, and that's where the curiosity part comes in is I, I, I look for them to always want to be learning and understanding where the people are coming from that are appearing before them when they're on the bench um, and what um, having to be in that courtroom does to their personal lives and their work lives. Um, and I think that when a judicial candidate gets a union endorsement, what it says is that this person is going to consider you as a whole person. 
um, and that you have been vetted by a trusted source that is looking out for regular working people who are having to navigate a really difficult and complex and sometimes unfair system. So changing gears just a little bit, um, you know, you you mentioned, uh, I guess I mentioned before, kind of like some of the reasons why there has been a lot more news media coverage of union efforts or of labor issues. And, you know, one of the things that we had heard over the past couple of years is like, well, a lot more people are talking about it, but we aren't seeing a rise in actual union membership. And I think that that's kind of starting to come around a little bit. Um, and, And so, you know, tell us what your perspective is as to why labor issues uh, and efforts towards unionization are, are, you know, being felt more in in the news media and starting to really show up in the numbers. Uh, What is it about 2022 um, that it's become a moment when workers are really finding ways to realize the true value of their labor? There are a couple of observations that I have about this. Um, Several years ago, both the AFL-CAO and my union and other unions um, embarked on an effort to tell our story better. For so long, unions allowed our opposition um, to frame who we were and what we did. And there was a concerted effort um, to do research and polling of regular working people, both union and non-union, to to figure out, like, what is it that's missing about the incredible story of what unions have been able to do, what what workers through their unions have been able to do to improve their lives. Um, And so I think, you, you know, going into COVID, we were starting to see like a little bit of momentum. Um, Jasmine, you know, I showed that video of Robert Reich um, that he made before COVID about why unions matter to you. If you have time, I, it's a five minute video. Mm-hmm. I really recommend it. Um, but, you know, we, I think once COVID hit um, and people were really starting to feel agitated, especially frontline essential workers about their work work situation because they were risking the lives of themselves and their families, uh, we started to see more attention being paid to this. And I think we can really thank the amazing workers down in Bessemer, Alabama at Amazon for blowing the lid off of the really aggressive anti-union tactics that employers use to keep workers from organizing. That story captivated the the country in a way that we hadn't seen in a really long time because people just couldn't wrap their heads around that this company was able to change the timing of the stoplights in front of the plant so that a, so that an employee couldn't roll down their window and safely, you know, take a flyer from a union organizer or that they were able to like convince the post office to put a mailbox in front of the plant for a mail-in, you know, ballot election. So I think that people were really shocked at this um, industry that calls themselves union avoidance. It's a $340 million industry. Um, And that's just the stuff that gets reported to the IRS. Um, So I think that people were shocked at what people go through to try to start a union at their workplace. And so it's become, in some ways, like a a dramatic story to tell. You know, we're seeing Starbucks right now fire union organizers across the country Mm -hmm. um, just for supporting a union and the uphill battle that those workers are facing against some of the most powerful corporations in the world. And it's it's inspiring to a lot of people. and, And, you know, we're seeing a lot of interest in union activity as a result. Yeah, so, you know, we've mentioned Amazon and Starbucks, and you mentioned Heine Brothers as well. And some of these newer labor leaders emerging in this movement are are younger and more diverse than the folks who have historically led the labor movement. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about how these new folks are being integrated into the existing movement? You know, I saw um, a someone posts on Twitter the other day and they were up at a a panel discussion where Chris Smalls from the Amazon Labor Union, um, David, who is an amazing organizer with Half Price Books in Minnesota, um, and um, some of the Bessemer, Alabama, Amazon 
workers were on a panel and this young person saw some older labor leaders in the audience and they said, what do you, what do you think that basically the question that you asked Jasmine and um, this person on Twitter said, you know, this older white man choked up and said, I think we're going to be okay. Um, And so we are open arms, you know, embracing the energy that this new generation of workers um, has is bringing to our movement. And at the same time, you know, just last week, uh, Liz Schuler was the first woman ever elected to be the president of the AFL-CIO nationally. She, when she uh, became secretary treasurer, made it a central focus of hers to support and uplift young workers in their efforts to be more involved in their union. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm really excited because, you know, in 2009, when I first started, there weren't a whole lot of people that looked like me. Um, and now I'm seeing a lot more people who look like me um, and more diversity. And I think um, even in 2009, our leaders were saying, our leadership has to look like our membership. Um, and that is the result of a really intentional effort um, to bring more diverse representation to leadership roles within the UFCW, within the AFL-CIO. And I think it just really means great things for our future. It's so exciting um, because we're reflecting what our members look like um, and what they think. And that's only going to make us stronger as a movement going forward. Yeah, that's really encouraging to hear. And um, I want to thank you for coming on because as a millennial who has always supported unions, but has only really become engaged in learning about organized labor in the last couple of years, um, I've really learned a lot and hopefully our listeners will too. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, yeah. And, and best of luck with everything you're doing right now. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Jasmine. Jay Dennis is a business agent for Teamsters Local 89. And so earlier in the show today, we talked a little bit about um, the history of labor in Kentucky. But we wanted to have Jay on to talk a little bit more specifically about like current labor actions going on right now. So Jay Dennis, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're really glad that you're here to, to talk to us a little bit about this. Um, so before we get too much started into, you know, the current actions and everything, t- just to give everybody a sense of what you do. So you're the business agent for Teamsters Local 89. And the way that I kind of understand business agents is they manage kind of the day to day. They act as communications between the workers and the management. And I also know that there's a couple of different Teamsters unions in, or Teamsters locals here in Kentucky. Um, so tell us a little bit about the, you know, the local 89. What what kind of workers you you represent and what your day to day job is like? Uh, yeah, I'm one of uh, quite a few business agents at Teamsters Local 89. I think we have 16 total. Um, you know, technically we're called assistants to the president, commonly called business agents. Uh, but we have around 16,000 members, so we've got a pretty hefty job. Uh, we cover, you know, the range of, of uh, industries from shipping like UPS, um, you know, freight, the freight industry, car hauling, uh, moving cars out of the port plants, GM plants, to manufacturing, to even casino workers and office workers, uh, and now campaigns, political campaigns as well. Uh, so what I do uh, is my job is member representation. Uh, that includes, uh, you know, uh, primarily negotiating contracts, uh, representing members in day-to-day issues, which might present themselves as grievances, uh, which are uh, disputes. That would be the best way to put it. Uh, also, arbitrate cases and uh, generally engage in member outreach. You know, just to give you an idea of what I do, I have about 14 locations I cover a number of contracts and the jurisdiction I cover basically spans off local 89's jurisdiction, which is from Southern Indiana all the way to uh, our Southern border in Kentucky. And we kind of split right down the middle of the state. So we are part of the 1.2 million uh, uh, 
member international brotherhood of teamsters um and yeah that's pretty much what we do and what my day can what my job consists of yeah so the reason yeah. we wanted to have you on is because this is a really big moment in labor right now with Yes. you know, several major actions going on. And I know that there's at least one specifically that you wanted to talk to us about today. So can you tell us about um, a few of the current actions? Okay. Well, you know, more generally, uh, we have seen uh, across the country movements just popping up in places we wouldn't have thought or, or that some of our, mm. uh, some of us thought about, but uh, um, I don't think saw coming to fruition this quick you know you have things like starbucks and Am starbucks and amazon you know it seems like we're getting a new starbucks organized by the day mm -hmm. uh, that's not us that's that's <laughs> a union, but still it's a movement and building yeah. is something we want to see the same with amazon i don't think anybody thought that these things would just kind of organically grow and they have but more locally you know we're we at Local 89 are, are constantly in a state of organizing. Uh, we have a very good organizing department, communications department, so we're always uh, out there engaging in organizing activities, trying to reach out and support other unions that are doing it as well. We are also, our, our local is, is considered one of the more militant locals in the country. And I'm very <laughs> proud of that. Uh, so, as of right now, locally, uh, one of the companies I represent, uh, Fire King, um, my sisters and brothers out there have went on strike. We've been on strike for about six weeks under unfair labor practices. I'm proud to say they are holding the line. We haven't had no one cross the picket line, and these guys are just, they're awesome. And it's an indicator of seeing this, of, of what's going on across the country. Workers are fed up. They're ready to hit the streets. Mm -hmm. They know what it's going to take, and they're 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 just done. And we're seeing this in in unions, and we're seeing it just pop up organically at at again places we we wouldn't expect it to. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so we have a lot of listeners uh, who are members of unions, but we, of course, have a lot of mem uh, listeners who aren't members of unions as well. Uh, and, yeah. and, you know, uh, for either one of those groups of people, um, tell us a little bit about how, how people can be supportive of the folks who are taking action right now. You know, I, I know that there's strike funds that exist sometimes. Yeah. Is there one of those out there? And and then just are, what are some other ways that people can take action, you know, if they don't have extra money or, or don't, you know, don't have the money to give to a strike fund or something like that? Right, right. So, um you know, the big thing is showing up and showing support. You'd be surprised at how far that goes. Um, you know, when you have a striking worker, they've taken a huge risk. Their families have taken a huge risk. And just showing up and supporting them, you know, holding a sign, being out there talking to them, uh, just showing concern and some solidarity goes a long way, right? Uh, you don't have to give money. Um, just, just support, right? Maybe even if you're if you're a busy person, just driving by and honking. Yeah, I know that sounds small, but that that helps charge our our, our members up. It it helps, um, you know. So you can do that. You can spread the word. Uh, you know, if any actions pop up, um, you know, kind of in the sort of more asymmetrical way of doing things and trying to put pressure on a on an employer making calls things like that shooting out emails you can do that just uh watch keep yourself informed and come out and support if you can um yeah yeah and in that same vein specifically you know for people who may not really know what's going on at fire king what you know what's going on down there and how can people come support at fire king okay so i'll give you a synopsis here of what's going on um so i said we were on a fair labor practice strike that centers around a number of um, charges we have filed with the national labor relations board but behind that what led up to this was um negotiation uh, we we have been in negotiations for several weeks and one of the key two of the key issues were pay uh, of course, and then healthcare. Uh, our members have an abominable healthcare plan at this point. 
the company uh, was responsible for this. They had every opportunity to fix it. They have had opportunity to come to the table and negotiate a better plan, but they haven't done so. Uh, what had happened is, and, and let me back up a little bit and give you some context of what this plan uh, entails. It's got really high premiums uh, and that cost share is with employees. It has deductibles anywhere to $7,000, but it gets better. Out-of-pocket costs all the way up to $13,500. Uh, so our members are having to make the choice. Do you go to the and an $800 emergency room visit? Mm -hmm. okay. They're having to make the choice of, you know, do I go to the doctor for this ache or pain uh, and, you know, potentially get in a financial situation I can't get out of or I, do I just let it ride? And that can unfortunately be fatal for some people or, or could uh, cause them to do something or, or get them in a situation where they don't get the help they need and their outcome is worse. Yeah, definitely. So um, that was a major issue. The company would not move on that. We proposed several things to get them in a good health care plan. Uh, the company said it was about control. They didn't want it. Uh, the union involved in healthcare, even though we were going to provide for even their non-union folks. Um, and they threw what was called a last best and final offer on us, which we were legally obligated to vote. Our members rejected it unanimously, which with a group that size is, is mm -hmm. pretty awesome. It's very rare to see that. Despite knowing what the ramifications of that might be, that they might have to go out on the street, uh, hit the streets, um, they did so because they're fed up. And I think that's, we see that with a lot of workers these days. People are fed up. They're, just, they're not going to uh, be subjected to less than their worth, right? So um, we've, been on the, we've been on the picket line for six weeks now. Um, again, we are holding strong. It's been a hot week too. <laughs> it has, it has, and we're out there. We're out there. And um, I will say, uh, you know, my members, that the company has pulled out all the stops uh, to try to break solidarity and to get people back inside, including cutting off their insurance prematurely, uh, even though they had paid for it mm. uh, in advance. Um, but it didn't work. It just uh, strengthened their resolve to, to make this happen. I'm very proud of them for that. I'm proud to call them sisters and brothers. So yeah, I think I think that's a lot of really good context, so that you know people who aren't in a union kind of know what this looks like, and hopefully yeah. um, some of our Louisville listeners. I know we have some Southern Indiana listeners too. Ho hopefully they can uh, come by and show their support. Absolutely. We wanted uh, to talk a little bit more generally, too. So, you know, there's been a lot of news about labor recently and several new unions popping up. You mentioned that earlier in the interview. Um, mm -hmm. So has, as somebody who's been working on labor issues for a while, you know, does it feel like this movement is different? And how is it different from the past? Oh, yeah. Um, it's uh, that's probably a much longer conversation than we have in this <laughs> but I'll try to um, sum it up. It, it, it just seems to me to be a little more organic and that's a, that's a good thing. Um, it seems to involve uh, workers who traditionally haven't been um, active in the mm -hmm. labor, you know, who would have thought uh, uh a decade ago, Starbucks would be organizing to the level it has. Yeah. And I think this is just an indicator that, um, you know, especially people in the service industry are, are fed up. And I think what we're seeing now is more reminiscent of what we saw in the um, first half of the 20th century. Right. And what, and I'm going to, I'm going to, critique my, my movement here a little bit in saying <laughs> there was a period of complacency 
in inactivity and lack of engagement of younger workers and workers that weren't in your traditional, um, you know, uh, industries. And I see now that we have this whole new movement popping up and it's not a top down movement. It's a, it's an energized movement. It's a, it's a more militant movement. And, um, I think that's just one of the many ways that this, what I would call this new movement, um, is, is, um, is going. Yeah. Yeah. I think that really leads me into my next question. You talked about how there are a lot of like young or new workers who are working towards unionization. Um, have there been any obstacles integrating some of the more long-term union leaders with new organizers? Yeah, uh, there has. Um, I, you know, it's kind of odd. I was one of the young guys for, for a while now <laughs> becoming a tribal elder, so to speak. Um, you know, uh, and, and, you know, I don't want to take away from uh, the, the folks that came before me's contributions, and that's not what I'm trying to do here. Uh, but I think uh, some of the older generation not engaging younger, uh, younger workers uh, has been a fool's game. And I think those decades where we didn't do that led to the decline in our numbers. Uh, I think anyone that doesn't see, uh, just doesn't try to um, help nurture that energy we see and that talent we see, is doing it uh, is is doing a disservice to the movement. Okay, um, I like to think that that kind of my peer group and uh, you know I'm in. Well, I'll brag on my leadership here at Local 89. They have the same, you know, uh, they may be older than me, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, they they do share that vision that uh, we need to make sure that uh, not only is this labor movement around what we're around, but it's around for future generations because exploitation of workers is not going away anytime soon. Mm-hmm. And there always needs to be. Uh, some force there to push back against that. Absolutely. No, that's a really great point. Uh, and, and kind of the last question that we have, um, you know, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of workers. You mentioned the organic growth in this movement in, in recent days, uh, and, and there's a lot of people who are probably listening who, you know, are thinking about organizing, uh, you know, for a union or or considering, you know, whether or not that's worth it for them. Uh, the labor laws in this country and in the state are complicated. There's a lot of rules about how things work, uh, and a lot of people don't know what they don't know sometimes. So if there's somebody listening who's thinking about that, um, you know. Do you have any advice for those folks who are early in the process about what they should be doing, how they should be operating, or, or what are some things uh, that, that you would encourage them to think about as they're considering uh, whether or not being a part of a union or organizing a union is right for them? Okay. So um, that, again, is a larger question. And um, I, I'm a business agent. I, I almost wish one of the organizers was sitting here with me. Uh, they could probably speak on it a little bit better. Uh, but my advice would be to would be you know start talking to each other start having job action start studying and seeing you know what your rights are um then what i would do is you know start talking to your fellow employees the ones you you trust uh and look at what your next step is okay um and i would say what you should do in your next step, whether it's a labor organization like Local 89 um, or, or legal counsel or whatever, find someone that can help guide you through the organizing process, whether you're starting a new union like we've seen in, uh, with Amazon and, and, and Starbucks and things like that. Uh, but find somebody that can help kind of guide you uh, through that process because the process leans heavily toward the employer and you need somebody that can help you navigate all the uh, rules and laws around this and ultimately how to navigate a union busting campaign which is a is a whole critter in itself then you know you want to you want to yeah. establish that and um, I think you also should look at what union fits you best you know what resources 
they have, uh, you know, and and go from there. I'm going to give a shameless plug, but uh, Local 89 has a tremendous organizing department, so feel free to call us anytime. But, you know, you may be in an industry where someone else, um, you know, fits much better, and that's something you want to do. You may want to start up your own organization, but you do need uh, someone to help you kind of navigate that. Yeah, I think what you said about just starting to talk to people uh, as someone who has, has been part of a unionization effort, that's really how it starts. I mean, just yeah. talking to your fellow coworkers about what's going on in your workplace. Um, so I think that's some really good advice. And thank you so much for coming on. And um, I hope that everyone goes out and supports Fire King and, and supports what you all are doing out there. Absolutely. And uh, we hope to see you out there. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. Thank you. Good talking to y'all. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MyOldKWAPod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that contains our show notes that comes out on Fridays. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we are doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Dimcast network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week.